All right, children. There's not many people here in the in the center. You're either you're either cold or you're hot, I guess. There's not too many lukewarmers. Oh, but here comes Eunice. She can sit in the center someplace. From the congregation at prayer, the psalm for the week. Oh, here we go. Diane, you can cut. There's right here in the... Are you alone or... Am I lukewarm then? Are you alone? Okay, well, he, okay, we'll expect to see. Out of the hymnal, Psalm 72, we'll pray the psalm responsibly by half verse. And today, uh, let us delay the um, uh, speaking forth. She's right here. Diane is here. She's there. Good morning. Good morning. I think we need to consolidate the bear fans up here anyway. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll delay the recitation of Acts 2 until, until after the psalm prayer uh, and connect it directly to the material on baptism, okay? So Psalm 72 out of the hymnal, we'll pray the psalm responsibly by half verse. The um, hymn is 405, to Jordan's river came our Lord, and we will sing all of it today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. In Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God. And your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness. And your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people. And the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy. And crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures. And as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass. Like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish. And he is found till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him. And his enemies lift the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. And saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave, 
May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. O eternal God and Father, you have revealed your Son as the only Savior from sin and called us to the blessed knowledge of salvation. We thank you that you have preserved your truth among us despite all the wiles and assaults of the wicked one. And we beseech you, keep us evermore in purity of doctrine and send forth your word among all people, accompanying it with the effective working of your Holy Spirit, that many may be brought to know your Son and obtain the inheritance of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And now we take up the Acts 2, 38 and 39, a promise of the Apostle Peter concerning holy baptism that concluded his Pentecost sermon. What is Acts 2, 38 and 39? Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. To be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins is what happens when you are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You are baptized into the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is to you, to your children, to all who are afar off, and to all whom the Lord our God calls to repentance and faith. So if we turn the page, parts one and two of the sacrament of baptism from the catechism, its essence and its benefits. What is baptism? Baptism is not just plain water, but it is the water included in God's command and combined with God's word, which is that word of God. Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So it is not just plain water, but you cannot have baptism without water. It's the water included in God's command, namely the command, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and combined with God's word, namely the name of the triune God in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Every baptism is administered that way, the person's name, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So it's not just plain water, but it's the water included in God's command and combined with God's word. What benefits does baptism give? It works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this as the words and promises of God declare. Which are these words and promises of God? Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Mark, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So the object of faith is Christ and the word of the gospel. Whoever believes in Christ and is baptized into Christ will be saved. Whoever does not believe in him but rejects him in impenitence and unbelief 
will be condemned. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you that for Jesus' sake, baptism works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this as your words and promises declare. Comfort us and strengthen our faith in Jesus with the promise that whoever believes in him and is baptized will be saved. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Again, let us pray. Heavenly Father, preserve your servants, Susan, Frank, Holly, Kyle, Kathy, Sarah, Cheryl, and John, in their baptismal faith against every assault of the evil one who would destroy their faith. Grant to them the comfort and consolation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his peace which surpasses all understanding, and guard and keep them in this veil of tears, faithful to Christ until they are translated to eternal glory. We commend to you the sick of our congregation and extended family, praying for their ongoing healing and sustenance according to your will. Reverend John Leiter, Bob Piper, Bob Rothy, Peyton Locklear, Jamelyn Martin, Kathy Miller, Heather Peters, Josiah Berenger, and Carol Bender. And we commend to you Reverend Dwayne Schneider in hospice care. Grant him a peaceful departure from this veil of tears in your own good time. All our petitions and whatever else you see that we need, we commend to you in the words our Savior taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Hymn 405. To Jordan's river came our Lord, the Christ whom heavenly hosts adored. The God from God, the from light, the Lord of glory, power, and might. The Savior came to be baptized, the Son of God in flesh disguised, to stand beneath the thoughtless will and all his righteousness fulfill. As Jesus in the Jordan stood and John baptized the Lamb of God, the Holy Spirit, heavenly doth, descended on him from above. Then from God's throne with thunderous sound came God's own voice with words profound. This is my son, was his decree, the one I love who pleases me. The Father's word, the Spirit's flight, anointed Christ in glorious sight. As God's own choice from Adam's fall to save the world and free us all. Now rise, faint hearts, be resolute. This man is Christ, our substitute. He was baptized, Jordan stream, proclaimed Redeemer, Lord Supreme. All right. John. My, my mother is doing fine. She... Uh, 
went to Frederick Hospital. We arrived about 7.15 on Tuesday morning. It takes them a, a while to do all, because they do a, another EKG, they do echocardiogram, they do blood draws, they, all this preparation. And she went in for the procedure a little before 10 o'clock in the morning. It lasted about 45 minutes. And um, they go in through both ephemeral arteries with instruments up to the heart. And then the aortic valve that is stenosed, calcified, they come in from the top and the new one is in a cage, spring-loaded type thing, and then they balloon it open and the other one out of the way. So the old one flattens out against the wall and the new one takes its place and immediately begins functioning. So, and she was in, it's a twilight sleep, it's not general anesthetic. So she was uh, in recovery a little longer than uh, she would have had to have been, but they needed to wait for a room on the cardiac floor. And, and she spent uh, Tuesday night to Wednesday night, and I picked her up yesterday afternoon. And so she talked to her this morning. She slept in. She got up at 10 minutes to 5. <laughs> so she'll be in church on Sunday. There you go. So it's quite, uh, this, I, I can't say enough about the, uh, the doctors, the uh, physician's assistant, the other personnel down there were just top-notch in every way. So, Dr. Peter Mason was the heart valve specialist. If you're not familiar with Center for Advanced Healthcare, it's, it's part of the greater Frederick campus. It's on the um, southeast side on Doing, yeah, third floor. So that's where they do the procedure, and then she was on the third floor of the main old hospital on the northwest side. So it's basically you're on the opposite end. So uh, Dr. Mason came out and talked with me and showed me his pictures and everything, you know, went well. It's a little bit of a challenge that they knew would be there to go when you're 93 and you're going up through those arteries, but that went okay. Peter Mason, yeah, he's terrific. And then, um, well, Dr. Pearson is uh, uh, the sur sur surgeon. You have to have a heart surgeon on hand, so he was in there for the procedure. He explained also to her back in December what it would entail, and he was very, he was very endearing. He's a Christian man. His name was Paul, Dr. Paul Pearson, and then the heart valve guy, Dr. Peter Mason. So that was not lost on my mother since, <laughs> since her oldest son is Paul and her youngest son is Peter. She thought that was very cool. I wonder if uh, Peter's uh, father's name was Perry. Mason, I could have been. <laughs> but Dr. Mason, so after she got into the room, I get a call and it's Dr. Mason. He says, uh, your mom's in her room. Did they, did they notify you yet? And I said, no. He said, are you still in the same waiting area? I said, yep. He said, I'll come and get you so you don't have to go through security. So then he walked all the way over from the opposite end of the hospital and we chatted and he walked me through. He says, now we're going through these doors, don't pay any attention, you know, authorized personnel only. <laughs> so I didn't have to go downstairs and go through the, you know, retina exam and all that. So that was very nice. Anyway, so if you have a, if you, Well, since COVID, the, the, it's very, and, and there is greater security because, you know, like my mother said on 
Tuesday night, there were police outside in the hall. Clearly, there was some criminal element that was in the hospital. And uh, of course, she asked, uh, what's going on out there? And, well, we can't tell you. <laughs> so you can pretty much walk into Community Memorial, but down there, there's a lot of Frederick is the only level one trauma center in this area, so they get the worst of the worst. Of yeah, the and then, but people. then there's the, yeah, it, there's the. But I, 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 yesterday I went there, I parked in the parking garage of the advanced uh, center for advanced care, yeah, and down below, because then I could come up to the third floor and I retraced my steps that I went with Dr. Mason, so I avoided all security and I went in. <laughs> all right, so there you go. We are in chapter 19 of Matthew's Gospel. And we, uh, let me say a few more comments about verses 11 and 12. We had had our lengthy discussion last week about um, marriage and divorce, particularly with respect to um, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and so forth, and how all things must serve faith in Christ. Now, in verse 11 and 12, he said to them, all cannot accept this saying. You know, his disciples realized the seriousness of, of marriage, and they said, if such is the case, you know, if you, you marry and you divorce, and that's adultery, and when you remarry, then it's better not to marry. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying but only those to whom it has been given. And if you think about this, what we believe and confess and hold up concerning all of Christian doctrine, including marriage and family, is um, unique and not readily by any means accepted by the world around us. You know, the world around us lives by expediency. Each person doing what seems right in their own eyes and justifying everything. So he's talking about what it means to live by faith in the Lord and in his word. So all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. So he, he's accenting the necessity for faith in Christ to embrace um, the gifts of God. For there are eunuchs. Now, technically that would be an emasculated or castrated man. It's used in a somewhat figurative sense here. You know, there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So, three categories. Let's replace eunuch with celibate, shall we? There are celibates who were born this way. Uh, the gift of being able to remain single and not burn with passion and the... the unquenchable desire to have sexual fulfillment. So there are celibates who were born thus. There are celibates who were made celibates by men. That is to say, forced celibacy. Celibacy in and of itself is not wrong. But to force someone into that against nature, against God's clear word, against their own biological desires is wrong. And then the third category, there are celibates who have made themselves celibate for the kingdom of heaven's sake, who 
uh, by the grace of God, again, have been able to remain chaste and not marry and give their full-time um, energies to the service of Christ's bride, the church. So instead of having a bride that one must attend to as a husband, he is given himself over to Christ's bride, the church. He was able to accept it. Let him accept it. So it's the middle category, the forced celibacy, that Jesus, of course, would have a serious problem with. And that's why Paul says, it is better to marry than to burn with passion and get into even worse trouble, so to speak, if I can uh, paraphrase and extrapolate. You know. So St. Paul's advice is extremely earthy and extremely uh, practical. Better to marry and channel one's energies into that relationship than to try to maintain a celibate life that ends up leading to profligate living because you have these desires. And quite frankly, I, uh, I cannot help but think that this is part of the uh, catalyst for the problems in the Roman Catholic ministerium uh, of forced celibacy and what unfulfilled yearnings and desires can lead to when you have the spiritual dimension, in this case, satanic temptation to seek fulfillment of those yearnings and desires elsewhere. Perversion is anytime you take something of God's that is good and then misuse it. Uh, that's perversion. So love is good. Brotherly love is good. You know, <coughs> familial love is good. Uh, erotic love is good. But erotic love belongs in marriage between a husband and wife. Okay? Uh, filial love, brotherly love, is good. But one can be tempted to take that love into other activities. He who has ear to hear, let him hear. Okay? So perversion is whenever you take something that is good and then twist it. Okay? Um, so homosexuality, lesbianism, and, and so forth. Okay? Any final maybe comments or questions that you have from last week's study or this today. How many of you read the Old Testament reading yesterday in the congregation at prayer about Judah and Tamar? Okay, Can you imagine if Mel Gibson did a, an extended mini-series on the Bible? It would be for mature audiences only, I think, right? So I read that to the kids yesterday in chapel with commentary along the way. I um, seldom have such an attentive group. <laughs> yeah, the adults too. Yeah, how is he going to handle this? Pastor Christensen's coming after us. Wow, that was amazing. <laughs> but there's ways in which it can be done, you know. I mean, children need to know that uh, a man's seed that makes his wife pregnant is a sacred and holy thing. And a man's seed enters into the wife's womb and makes her pregnant. So I didn't have to you know, use other vocabulary for that. And in the case of Ur and Onan, the first and second born sons of Judah, they did not uh, want uh, Tamar. Uh, and uh, they were wicked, obstinate, unbelieving. 
And so the right of the kinsman redeemer to care for the widowed uh, Tamar, they did not want to exercise. You know, and God killed them both. And then, um, then, uh, then there's Sheila. In this case, that's a man's name. The youngest son, he was too young initially, but when he became of age, Judah doesn't give him over to Tamar. And so Tamar, who was forced to go back to her father's house, was left without a husband, without a, a redeemer kinsman, with, without her social security. And so she takes matters into her own hands and she disguises herself as a harlot. And then fits in well with what we just talked about. It's better to marry than to burn. Judah's, Judah's wife had died. So he goes seeking release of his energies with a prostitute. Now, if you want an example of um, male chauvinist bigotry, is that a word in the Bible? Uh, Judah, Judah is, is it there. He, he finds the woman veiled, obviously um, dressed the part. And before he goes in with her, you know, he wants to do right by her. So he wants to pay her. I'll give you a goat. <laughs> you know. I'll give you a goat in exchange for sex. And she, um, she says, well, what will you give me in pledge? Because he didn't have the goat with him, you know. Uh, and then she says, give me your signet ring, your cord, and your staff. And that was her security. So he does it. You know, Men will do foolish things for, you can finish the sentence. So uh, she becomes pregnant. And then um, he doesn't know it just yet. You know, she becomes pregnant. He sends his servant with the, with the goat to make good. And then to collect the pledge, his signet ring and cord and so forth. There's no harlot to be found. And the people in the area where she had uh, plied, her plied her trade. Thank you. That, thank you. I knew, Polly, you'd come up with the uh, exact phraseology that I was looking for. Yeah, where she plied her trade. And there's no, there's no prostitute here. And so this is troubling to Judah when the servant comes back and reports this. And what happens next? Well, it turns out, you know, after a time, Tamar shows up pregnant. And then Judah, the magnanimous, <laughs> says she should be burned. And then she says, by the man to whom these belong, I was impregnated. His signet ring, his cord, his staff. And then he admits, you are more righteous than I. And he's especially referring to the fact he did not give Sheila over to be husband to her. So she's not burned, she's not stoned, she's not killed. But there's twins in her womb, um, Zara and Perez. Who is the first one? The firstborn is always the one who comes out first, even if they retreat. Yeah. So the hand of one comes out, they put the cord on it, then goes in, and then Perez comes out. Secondborn. Another example of where the secondborn becomes part of the genealogy. And so if you look in Matthew's gospel, remember 
um, it was chapter 1, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, and so forth. So Perez is son of the promise. Perez is in the genealogy of Jesus. So part of Jesus' genealogy includes um, a man who was conceived not only out of wedlock, but uh, by a man with his daughter-in-law. And so Matthew's genealogy, as we noted, is filled with stories like that, that gives weight, gravitas, we like to say, right, to the angel of the Lord telling Joseph, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay. So, great story. And then today we had Potiphar's wife who falsely accuses Joseph Old Testament Joseph of rape. Okay. What's that? I think Well, uh, is it not better that we talk about these things here from the perspective of God's word? Yeah. Right. All right. But we didn't have to use certain language of the world, and we didn't. All right, so let us continue then, verses 13 and following. <coughs> then, after this discussion of marriage, there's something that the crowds who hear Jesus preach and teach, and don't, don't underestimate the the impact of the context, okay? What do I mean by that? Remember last week, it was the scribes and Pharisees. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And of course, I pointed out last week that they, according to the law of Moses, would write out the certificate of divorce, say, you burned the stew, here's the divorce papers. They could wash their hands of that woman and go on to the next. Serial monogamy, it was lawful. They were righteous because they followed the laws. Okay? And of course, Jesus said, it is because of your hardness of heart that Moses wrote this. Not because this is a wonderful thing and God's will and so forth. But the impact of that on the common man listening to Jesus preach, I submit to you, was a relief. You could even call it comforting because he did not endorse the self-righteous pharisaical activity of those men who willy-nilly divorced their wives and claimed to be righteous only to go on to somebody else. Okay? By Jesus' words, they understand that he is elevating marriage to a much higher and more sacred level than the scribes and Pharisees. What an irony, huh? They want to accuse him of, what's the word? Dissing the law of Moses. And he says, from the beginning it was not so. God made them male and female. He holds up marriage, the institution of marriage between a husband and a wife, as a lifelong commitment for the giving of rece and receiving of love and life that results in the procreation of children. So, rather than terrorizing the consciences of those who heard Jesus speak on marriage in such sacred terms as he did with the Pharisees, now these fathers and mothers bring their children to Jesus. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. Oh my goodness. So here, these parents are getting it from both sides. From the pharisaical self-righteous on the one hand, and now here, the disciples of Jesus on the other. So his disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me. 
and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. This is parallel to the account in Mark 10. Remember the old King James? Suffer the little children. I do like the word suffer there. It, it means allow, but because of what we know about that, um, that word, suffer, suffer the little children to come to me, to just simply say, allow them to come to me, it's not incorrect, but with suffer, it indicates that it's never easy to let the little children come to him. There are many a parent who will stay away from church because it's with their little children because it's just too much work, too much of a bother. So remember, let the little children come to me has nothing to do with any false notion that these poopsies are little innocents. They're not. You see the original sin in them from the time they're born, the self-centeredness and so forth. The wailing. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, they kick Rebecca, you around a bit. <laughs> Rebecca had that. Too. Why is this happening to me? You know, Jacob and Esau were beating each other up already in the womb, <laughs> seems to be. Okay. Well, no, John could leap in Elizabeth's womb, and, you know. There you go. That's right. I, I, was, I was brought Sorry. forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived, conceived right. me. Okay. So there is, um, it is difficult. Marriage is difficult. Holly giggles. Rearing children is difficult. Marriage is difficult. It's difficult to remain in the faith in marriage and to remain chaste. Having children is difficult. Except for Christine. She has that wonderful son sitting next to her. Where are you in the birth order again, Josh? I forget. You're two. Okay. So it's difficult. Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven is intended for little children. Now there is a, this let them come to me. Notice how often in the Gospels all kinds of people are brought to Jesus they don't bring themselves. Now, there are those occasions where people cry out to Jesus, you know, help me and save me and so forth, but it's based on a prior contact with him. So this passivity of being brought, you understand what I mean? Like, we bring our children to the waters of baptism. We bring um, neighbors, friends, acquaintances, co-workers, come and see Jesus. So there's this, this uh, bringing, which is very much indicative of the Christian faith. I cannot by my own reason or strength believe, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. Okay. So he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Now, Mark has the fuller extent, and clearly when he is laying his hands on them in Mark's gospel, it becomes much more explicit. He is communicating the kingdom of heaven to them, which means forgiveness, life, salvation. So through the laying on of hands, Jesus imparts to them the same blessings that he now imparts to little children through holy baptism. Now this next interlude might seem totally unrelated, but it's not. Yes. So are you saying then that those children wouldn't have needed to be baptized because that's not the point. Okay. The point 
first of all, the source of grace, forgiveness, salvation, and new life is always singularly who? Yeah, Jesus. So, how he gives it, that he gives it, and that he's the source of it is what matters. Okay, so, so it's like we talked about again last night in the Didache. Baptism saves because Christ is the content of baptism. Okay, so we have an adult that comes to faith in Jesus and has not yet been baptized. So what do we do? What do we do, Mark? Teach him. And baptize him, right, okay. So um, I think very likely most of these children had already been baptized by the ministry of John or by Jesus' disciples, but then keep them away. You know, they're speaking schizophrenic weirdness by rebuking them, okay? So, uh, Jesus is the source of it. And he is rich in his grace. He comes to us in many ways. Luther talks about this in the Schmal called Articles. He comes to us in baptism. He comes to us through the word. He comes to us through the keys. He comes to us through the sacrament of the altar. He comes to us through the mutual conversation and consolation of Christian brethren. Okay? But we dare, not, we dare not put this into some sort of a, well, since I have this, I don't need that. Like, if you're giving, it works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this as the words and promises of God declare. Therefore, if that is true about baptism, who needs the Lord's Supper? Okay. I, yes. I, I do. Oh, you do. <laughs> Yeah, so, so it's like this. Think of the word and think of the sacraments are all of the ways that Jesus takes up his children in his arms to bless them. Okay? And that's, that's key here. It's just like, otherwise we'd be reduced to, you know, I told my wife I loved her the night we were married. What need is there to do so afterwards? To which some of you are nodding your head in agreement. That's not... Okay. And, and you know, how is, how is love communicated to children? You know, so I see my daughter-in-law give birth. I see her care for her children, my grandchildren. I see her suckling them. I see her diapering them. Two very important activities, though somewhat different. You know, wiping the poopy butt and nursing the child at the breast. They're related because the one leads to the uh, need for the other, but very different activities. And then there's speech. There's talking to them. And then there's gentle speech and loving speech, and then there is firm, disciplined speech. There's physical contact of love that is warm and comforting, and there's physical contact of love that results, you know, and that's necessary too. So we need to see this much more organically when we're talking about word and sacrament. This is why I like to emphasize it is the Lord Jesus, the Lord's preaching, and the Lord's supper, the Lord's word, the Lord's holy sacraments. And then you see it holistically of all of the many ways in which he loves his children and cares for his children. Okay. So my, um, my guess would be, I know you're not supposed to base things on guess, but I'm just looking at the, the, the fabric of the New Testament. By this time in the ministry, those are, who are hearing Jesus, many of them, the whole households, had already been baptized. There certainly are some that are not. But 
my, sim my simple statement there is, how does Jesus take up children today in his arms and bless them? Through holy baptism. And through the ongoing ministry of the word which they encounter. It's not which one do they need and which one can they be dispensed from, but they need both, as we all do. Okay? I don't know if that helps at all. Uh, so, now behold, verses 16 through 22. One came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good. But one, God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? <laughs> Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which is the summary of the second table of the law, all of which he quoted there, first, fourth through the tenth commandments. You know, you shall not murder, fifth. You shall not commit adultery, sixth. You shall not steal, seventh. You shall not bear false witness, eighth. Honor your father and your mother. The fourth, you shall love your neighbor as yourself which takes in the entire second table of the law, including the covetous desires of wanting that which God has not given you in self-centeredness. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have. Give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. All right, that's far enough. Now we need to go back to the beginning. Jesus asked, uh, he came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do? that I may have eternal life. In his question, what does he believe? Or what can we learn about the faith of his heart on the basis of his question? What's that? It's all about himself. So even if he does a good deed, I'll treat Cherie nicely. <laughs> then hopefully I can get something out of her. Yeah, it's all about himself. So, who does he trust in? What does he trust in? His works, the things he'd accomplished, his money, and so forth. What does he believe about himself? That he is, that he is righteous, or to use the word that he uses of Jesus, he believes he is good. What subtle yet powerful word does Jesus speak to him that indicates he is not the righteous man that he thinks he is? Before we get there. There's, there's only one good. There is only one who is good. Why do you call me good? It is as if G Jesus were saying, do you understand what it is that you are saying of me? You call me good teacher. There's only one who is good. God. Uh, which doesn't mean Jesus is not claiming to be God. He is. But if there's only one who is good and that is God... God in the flesh, Jesus here, then what does that mean about him? That he, is not. he ain't good. 
even though he thinks he is. And even though he might have the outward of trappings, trappings of having kept the law. Do you believe the man is sincere? Absolutely. But sincerity doesn't count for nothing. If you're wrong, if you believe the wrong things, he believed he was good. He trusted in his own righteousness. What about when he says, what commandments should I keep? And Jesus gives him the whole second table of the law. And the summation, love your neighbor as yourself. All of these I've kept. Do you think he's sincere there? Yeah. And notice how that connects with the Pharisees. I know I've had 16 wives, but I'm still good because I gave them all the proper certificate of divorce, one after another, so I'm good and I'm righteous. Self-justification and rationalization are among the strongest human drives because they're ways in which we cover ourselves with fig leaves. Okay. Now, what do you think about Jesus' statement when he says, verse 17, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. What do you think of that statement? It's true. It's true, but you can't do it. (laughs) So if you fulfilled all of the commandments of God. Not possible. You would have what? God. Yeah, you'd be God, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, if you're able to fulfill all the, I mean, if you're able to live by all the commandments of the Lord, your life will be good. Yeah. But he's asking, he's asking something more there. He's asking about eternal life. If you want to enter into life, Jesus says, keep the commandments. So you're, so you're saying that's impossible. So if he kept all the commandments, it would mean he has life. Or I want you to say the negative. If he kept all the commandments, it would mean he has no No sin. sin. And And therefore he has life. But then we're not talking about original sin here. (laughs) Now, there's something that Jesus is doing. I think it confuses people when they hear him extolling obedience to the commandments as a way of life. Especially if you're a hardcore Lutheran, we're saved by grace and not by works. That's right. So let us eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know, let's indulge ourselves since we're not saved by our works, our obedience to the law. Now, you don't, you don't, yeah, sin boldly. You don't use the fact that you can't save yourself by the law as then the justification to indulge every appetite and covetous desire of the flesh. It's not serving your neighbor. Yeah, what is the purpose of doing the commandments, of doing the law? It's not to serve self, as Connie mentioned, he was only in this for himself, but to serve the neighbor. See, this is one of the problems with good works for your salvation. This guy was doing his good works solely for the benefit of himself. Okay, But there's something more here I want you to understand. When Jesus says, do the commandments, you will live. Is there anyone who has ever done the commandments? He has. So his doing the commandments and his statement here does mean the law is is good. Okay, it does mean the law is good. It also means that keeping the law, fulfilling the law, not having white hair is good. Oh, I'm trying to say something that gives you the reason why she's going to leave like offensive. No, have, have a good a- appointment. Okay, so. <clears throat> 
Keeping the law is necessary to have life. That's what Jesus is saying. Keeping, no, keeping the law is necessary to have life. And I have kept the law. And I have kept the law. There's only one who is good, and that is God. So the forgiveness of sins, the salvation that we enjoy as Christians, comes from the only one who is good, that is God in the flesh, our Savior, who kept the law, loving his neighbor in place of himself. His active obedience of keeping the law and his passive obedience as dying as the sin bearer under the judgment of the law. We can never say that the law is unimportant. Jesus fulfilled the law. He is the perfect one who is righteous. The law is necessary for salvation. In Jesus who has kept the law. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. Because he forgave sin, What did people accuse him of? Overturning the law. Because he forgave sin, they accused him of overturning the law. And that accusation came from a faith that believed that their obedience to the law was the source of salvation. When it wasn't. His obedience to the law was. So how does he answer the charge, remember? Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Unless your righteousness is greater than the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We've called it the forgiving righteousness of God. It's the perfect righteousness of the only one who is truly good and who has kept the law. Now, what is the one thing that this man lacked? See, it's, it's a temptation to go down the road. Well, he didn't, he got all of fourth commandment, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth commandment. He had a 60% on the fourth commandment, uh, 54% on the fifth commandment, uh, 70% on the sixth commandment, uh, 82% on the... What, where am I at? Whatever. The temptation is, you know, degrees of having kept it. Well, it's all or none. I mean, okay, and at the heart of all of the commandments is a love, not of self, but a love for the other. Okay. So, what does he lack? The question should be put, who does he lack? He lacks Christ. That's why Jesus calls him to repentance by saying, sell everything. But how does it end? How does the verse end? Verse 21. Sell everything, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. So there's the call to faith in Christ. So the selling of the poor, the selling of everything, the giving it away to the poor and so forth, is the call to repentance for all of his idolatry of trusting in his works, his righteousness, uh, his money, his wealth, his position, his status. Let go of all of it. Follow me. So when I say, what does he lack? It's not like, well, he he hadn't done quite enough philanthropic acts. That's not the point. The point was that his God was himself. His God was what he performed and accomplished, which he did out of the motivation of self-service. You know, there's a many wealthy person who has the means to write out large checks. It makes them feel good because, hey, they can afford it. But even more than that, other people think they're so magnanimous. You know, if I make $20 million and I give $100,000 away, well, whoop-de-doo. Oh, but he's so magnanimous, you know. So be careful judging the motivations of the giver. Love and good works are done not for the service of self, but for the service of the neighbor of another. And that's why Jesus, as the fulfiller of the law, 
He dies on the cross not for his own benefit, but out of love for his father and out of love for, his, for, for us, his neighbor. Yes? That's the first table of the law. Yep. The two go together. So <clears throat> if the first, you know, if one's faith, according to the first table of the law, is not in order, neither will what happens in the second table of the law. Now, I, I want to comment, uh, Pastor Canopy here talked about the third use of the law. The third function of the law is that the law describes for us as Christians what is good and right and so forth. Out of our faith in Christ... We confess and believe that the law is good. We also have the old Adam that's trying to wiggle out from underneath the requirements of the law. So the third use or the third function of the law is that it grounds us, no, this is good and this is right. That's something that the old Adam hates, but the new man delights in. So it becomes instructive for, the, for, for us so that the, the new man of faith is grounded in that which is good and that which is right. Okay? So the Christian does want to love God with all his heart, mind, and strength, love the neighbor as himself, and keep the commandments. But the Christian wants to do that because it serves Sharia, or it serves the neighbor. It serves the enemy. Okay? All right. So there, there is, uh, here again, we believe in good works for the benefit of the neighbor. And it's because the good work of Christ for us that we, living from that, desire as Christians to do good to our neighbor. But it's not for the reward, the pat on the back. The well, this is Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife. I mean, he was doing it for her benefit as well as Potiphar's. Yeah, and he you suffered know. much for it. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, he does the right thing. He doesn't commit adultery, and no good deed ever goes unpunished. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're uh, about out of time for today. Polly. Yes. This is the fellow. Um, the uh, it, parallel account is in Mark chapter ten. All right, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And also